You've heard it said countless times when fighters come into bouts far less than 100% that it's just part of the game. If you were to miss training because of every little issue you might have, you'd never train at all. And as far as fight night goes, no show, no check. Over the weekend, we saw perhaps one of the most baffling examples of this playthrough at mentality when TJ Dillashaw knowingly entered his bantamweight title bout against Aljamain Sterling with a shoulder that was being held together by sticky tack and rubber bands. The result for the former champion, an entirely ineffective performance, revealing afterwards the issue had been ongoing since April. As I watched this former champion ineptly flop around the cage for two rounds, I thought, how did this happen? Aren't the exams to get licensed pretty comprehensive? How did TJ Dillashaw get past the commission, the UFC, and the media on his way to making this foolish walk to the cage? Today we're going to explore the issue, how it happens, and why it's not going to stop anytime soon. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and I want to know how TJ Dillashaw Dillashaw even made it to the cage. Now, Dillashaw isn't the first or only fighter to ever pull off this trick, just the most recent and perhaps in the highest profile and most obvious way. I mean, you didn't have to go to Harvard to see that something was wrong with TJ at UFC 280. But this sport has a long history of fighters who truly have no business in the cage given their condition that still managed to find ways to make it out there. It's been speculated that Connor came into that bout with Dustin Poirier with a compromised leg, considering we can't quite pinpoint when the break actually even took place in the notorious documentary. Is that pop? Yeah. My, my leg? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. No. It was revealed that McGregor's knee was majorly compromised going into the Mendez interim title bout and that the UFC brass were fully aware. Kevin Lee noticed a week before his interim title bout with Tony Ferguson at UFC 216 that he had staff and chose to ignore it to avoid fatigue. I've been fighting it for about a week now. And uh, it just yeah, it didn't make the weight cut no easier, so. Instead, opting to cover it with makeup, a technique that both somehow fooled the commission who had to monitor him throughout the week to ensure he was okay to weigh in, having come to town 20 pounds heavy, as well as the UFC, who he largely avoided on fight week to ensure he was able to make it to the cage. Days before his loss to JDS on the first Fox card, Cain Velasquez lost a wheel and competed anyway. Francis Ngannou did it with two bum tires at 270. Matt Brown competed twice in the UFC without anybody knowing knowing his chest wasn't exactly in game day shape, and perhaps most famously, Michael Bisbean passed all requisite vision tests in the latter part of his career, despite not having the requisite vision to do so. Oh, and how could we forget about poor Tito at UFC 106? There are countless stories we could have easily made a top 40 list. So with so many high-profile talents showing up in states you would assume make them immediately ineligible, what exactly is going on here? How are they getting away with this? But more importantly, why do this at all? TJ Dillashaw is a perfect example of the mentality, relentlessly determined to make it into the cage even when he knows he has zero chance to win, that he's holding up the division, and that fans are getting a lackluster bout. None of that mattered to him, at least enough to stop himself. Dan Henderson tried to do the same thing before UFC 151 but changed his mind at the last minute, and spoiler alert, that got the entire card canceled. I have a whole video on that if you want to find out more. But why do fighters have this mentality? Well, the money's a pretty huge motivator. If you don't fight, you don't get paid. Maybe a main eventer can go 12 months with no cash, but imagine anybody on the come-up. Sitting out also completely destroys your career momentum. Good luck getting that big fight you were working towards when everybody else in the rankings around you has fought three times since you last could. And when or if you do pull out of a bout, you get absolutely trashed by other fighters and the fans. And then there's that unwritten code. The same reason a guy refuses to tap or says they can keep going when they clearly can't. If you sign a contract, you make the walk. It's just embedded in the culture. Since this mentality 
accountability is so prevalent and we've seen it happen so often, you would think the sports governing bodies would get a hold of this thing. Surely these commissions and the UFC are not just entirely inept, fooled by a little bit of cover-up makeup or cheesed exam answers. I mean, seriously, with as often as this happens, pro wrestling referees have a better track record. Well, according to an interview Steffi Haynes conducted with orthodox Steve Mora for BE in 2013, it's actually a lot easier than you'd think. Rather than just tell you what it is he said, let's do a little role-playing. You just made it into the big time. Congratulations, in only six weeks, you'll be making your debut on the Meta Virtual Reality Prelims brought to you by MMA Pizza. And you just can't wait. You're going to train day and night and make the best debut ever. But in your enthusiasm, just one week into camp, a problem has emerged. You don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it happened during a takedown. Maybe somebody kicked you in just the wrong spot. But you can feel that something's not quite right in your body. This is where Morris says you'd do nothing. See, if you don't get whatever it is that's bothering you looked into by a professional, there's nothing to report to the commission. You don't have to disclose anything that happened prior to fight week because there's nothing to disclose. An important distinction because if you did find out what happened and you were to lie on a form and the state found out about it, they might penalize you. They may not license you again. And so if there's nothing to report, there's no problem at all. For the next five weeks, you barely train and hope come go time, you're able to go. There's another snag though. Now it's fight week and there's going to be an exam. And that thing bothering you, it hasn't gotten any better. So what are you going to do? How on earth are you going to pass this test so you can make your debut and start your road to superstardom? Well, as Mora explained, these exams apparently aren't exactly comprehensive. They're not checking every nook and cranny. They're far more generalized than you would think. So long as you don't say anything about what's wrong, the types of things that you might actually be able to hide aren't easy to spot. And if there is something that somebody could actually see to indicate an issue, as Kevin Lee demonstrated, a little bit of cover-up goes a long way. And so that's that. You kept your mouth shut and you made it to fight night. Good luck competing in your half-able state. Although, to be honest, your opponent probably did the same thing, so I suppose it all evens out in the wash. Now, as much as I was just giving the commissions and the UFC a bit of grief there, the one commonality we've seen in all these examples is deception on the part of the fighters. So is it really their fault that TJ didn't bother to tell anybody about his shoulder until he mentioned it to Mark Goddard before the event? If fighters are going to go so far as not getting these things looked into initially, and then finding every way they can on fight week to hide this information from anybody in a position to put a halt to things, isn't that more on the athletes? How can we reasonably expect these governing bodies to somehow weed out this deception when, as Mora pointed out, unless it's something super obvious, there's not going to be a way for them to know. What, are they going to spend tens of thousands of dollars running every test possible because the fighters are not acting in good faith? That said, though, not every case is that cut and dry, and there's some serious questions. Kevin Lee, for example, he used some cover-up, great, but the commission was essentially monitoring his weight cut all week. So you're telling me this whole time that this guy is sweating profusely, not once did somebody from the state look at his chest and think, well, that's not good. Michael Bisping was hilariously able to skirt these eye tests, once by having his coach cough to indicate the right answers, and another time when he was left in the exam room for a while, he memorized the eye chart, which, by the way, he only needed to have 2200 vision, which apparently is just the top three letters, so it wasn't exactly as if he was memorizing the periodic table. We looked at a bunch of the physical forms that the state commissions use that are available online, and looking at what they supposedly look into, it's honestly baffling how fighters are getting into the cage without this stuff getting caught. Most of these forms say they do chest x-rays, then how in the world do you explain Matt Brown? And with TJ, for example, the forms do mention upper extremities, and the shoulder even specifically. So did they just skip that part for Dillashaw? The thing was popping out just from Aljo looking at it. Did they not bother to rotate his arm at all? Ask him to raise his hand? Or are these fighters fudging these forms 
by getting a sympathetic doc who will just say, you don't have any problems right now, do you? And then you reply, nope, I'm totally good, just sign there. Who are you people? I can honestly remember in high school that very thing happening to me when I played football. So maybe the states can't rely on these generalized physicals getting turned in with a doc's signature, or maybe their own tests on fight week need to be a bit more thorough. Surely they're actually running tests, right? We know they do the big stuff, but when it comes to limbs, do they just take the fighter at their word? I mean, I'm not asking you to run an MRI and consult a panel from NYU. Maybe just, I don't know, lift his arm up a bit. See if the fighter can walk or stabilize themselves. Doesn't seem like we're asking for much here. Not not that anybody's actually asking, to be honest, or really crying about this at all. Sure, TJ is an extreme example and one that did absolutely impact the quality of the product, but that is incredibly rare. In fact, it's the only example I can think of, at least where it was so clearly the wrong decision. But most of the time, it's just business as usual. Fighters are expected to fight hurt, and that's the thing. It benefits everyone that these fighters do. There are incentives on every single front for a fighter to go out there no matter what. Within reason, of course. At the very least, the commission and promotions seem diligent when it comes to things like the heart. Probably why we've never had a major incident and this type of thing isn't frowned upon. As far as more minor stuff goes, everyone wins when a fighter just toughs it out and competes. The fighter gets paid, they might win if they're capable enough still, the fans get the fights they want, promoters aren't having cards fall apart every five seconds, the states get their money from the promotions. If every single party involved is getting what they want essentially, you're not going to get a lot of outcry that things need to change. Maybe these tests aren't good enough. Maybe they do need reform. But is that really what we want? Much like the debate on better PED testing, it could end up being a case of be careful what you wish for. Because you just might get it all and then some you don't want, Chris Daughtry. Seriously though, I mean, do you really want a bunch of fights falling apart on fight week? Because that's exactly what would start happening. It's one thing for TJ to know his shoulder is jacked in April, but imagine all these big fights falling apart when they finally get in front of a commission doc because we've come up with a system that just catches everything. So it's really a matter of do we find this as a truly important issue, or maybe we just need to come to terms with the fact that these fighters are going to keep on doing this because it's just the mentality of this sport. And if we want to continue to enjoy it the way we do today, we have to accept that this is just how things are. At least that's my two cents on it, and my two cents were brought to you by Luke Taylor. Please show that man some love on social media. He's absolutely amazing, as well as Ben Rosette for these sweet sounds he provides us. If you want more content like this, and surely you do, I mean, this was great, right? Like and subscribe, super easy. What were your thoughts on this topic? Were you mad at TJ for doing what he did? Do you care that this is a regular occurrence? What would you do to fix it if you think it needs fixed? Discuss in the comments or don't. Either way, thanks for watching and have yourself a great week, everybody.